The Plumley Pod, episode 30. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today I have a treat for you. I have a surprise. Now, don't turn off when I mention this gentleman's profession. I need you to listen. I need you to listen, all right? I've taken great care in sourcing this podcast for you this morning. So please, if we're going to go in search of truth, let's do it properly. Let's listen and let's make a an informed decision. Enough said. This morning, I have with me Richard Lucas, who is the leader of the Scottish Family Party, which he founded. He's a published author. His previous career was in education, mathematics teacher. He's taught in two boarding schools, and he has served for eight years as a housemaster. He's a husband, a father of two teenage boys, and I am delighted to welcome him to the podcast this morning. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Looking forward to a chat. Well, I first heard about you on the UK Column website. That's ukcolumn.org, people. If you search for children's rights, if you type children's rights into the search bar, an excellent article comes up written by Richard. And it talks all about how children's rights, the concepts of children's rights, might be a Trojan horse. And it immediately grabbed my attention when I read it back in July, August. Go read it if you can. I I highly recommend it. But if you cannot, we've got the man here this morning. So I'm going to be asking him lots of questions all about it. First of all, Richard, please could you tell us a little bit about what are these children's rights that you talk about in in your article? Right, this is a fascinating area. The actual children's rights is the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child which was written back in the 1950s. It's it's been enacted into Scots law just recently, but the UK in general is signed up to this charter. In other words, they submit to the United Nations inspection as to how we're doing upholding these rights of children. Now, if you were to read the rights, I think there's 52 of them, you'd read them and think, yeah, that sounds absolutely fine. There's nothing to disagree with here. Unless, of course, you want under-18s to go fighting in wars or to be tortured or to not have a fair trial. I mean, it's just obvious of it. It's got things like a right to an education, a right to health care. Some of them are a bit bizarre, like a right to play. I mean, quite well, that means, I don't know. But you, you read through the rights, and they just seem almost all completely innocuous and obvious things that no one would dream of objecting to. But the problem comes in the way they're interpreted and the ethos they're used to instill in schools, which is a whole different matter. Isn't it just? (laughs) Now, do children have a right to play? That caught me straight away. Do they? Do children have a right to play? According to the United Nations, they do. Now, a couple of doors down from me, there was a family with a boy. The boy was about eight, maybe. And he was playing with his toys. And mum said to him, right, David, it's time to put your things away now. We're going out. And he turned around and said, I've got a right to play which is absolutely true. I mean, whatever it means, I do not know. Now, the people who wrote the right, what they probably meant was you're not allowed to send kids to work down the mine for 12 hours a day because they've got to be able to play. They've got to have some time to play as well. So that's what they would originally mean. Children need some time to play. But if you tell children you've got a right to play, I mean, what on earth does that mean? You've got a right to play in the middle of your lesson? You've got a right to play when your dad tells you you need to go and do the washing up? You can see the effect of that. Yeah, I mean, it's basically nonsense to enact a right like that. But that's not one of the ones that really causes a problem 
in schools. But it is a bit ridiculous to tell children they've got a right to play. Yeah. And the other thing it tells them is it also implies to them that your parents have not got the right to tell you what to do because you've got a children's right that overrides their authority. So when they say, no, it's time to do the dishes, you've got a right, a children's right that overrides that. And you've actually got the right to play. Yeah, so that one is bizarre, but that's not the main problem with what goes on in schools. What a terrible, terrible thing to teach to a child, I have a right to play. First of all, uh, being a mathematician, and I know you are too, we have this thing in maths, don't we? Is this always, sometimes, or never true? Does always, sometimes, or never apply to this, that, or the other? For starters, how can you say I have a right to play? You, you already pointed it out in a more colloquial fashion that, you know, what, you have a right to play in the middle of your lesson, you have a right to play and then go and play with your game station in the middle of a football match or something. Clearly, this can't be a, a right that is always present. And the fact that this is not being properly taught to children, I think, is absolutely disgraceful. What other yeah. issues are there in this delightful selection of children, so-called children's rights? Well, I'll go through another secondary issue before coming on to the main one. A secondary issue is they're taught, for, basically they're taught, you've got a right to be looked after and cared for and be educated and have health care. Now, in a sense, now, if you're talking to the government, I was talking to the government of another country and say, look, you need to do these things for children in your country, then I think absolutely right. If you tell children you've got a right to all things, then that takes away any sense of gratitude. And if something doesn't quite work out, you're on the front foot to complain. If everything's provided for you on a plate, well, that's just you tick the box, right? You've done what you were meant to do. It's a good job you did. Otherwise, I'd have reported you. So it encourages that sort of demanding, ungrateful Attitude. I mean, a little illustration I, I use of that. When I was working in a boarding school, my wife used to make breakfast in bed in the dormitory for boys on their birthday. So that was really nice. So they filled in a menu card the night before, and she'd arrive in the morning with the breakfast on a tray, and all the boys would sing happy birthday. And the boy whose birthday it was got his birthday breakfast. But then the inspectors came in and gave the boys this you know, manual, and they told them, you've got a right to have your birthday celebrated in the way that you want it celebrating. Okay, that's your right. So whatever you do to celebrate someone's birthday from then on, whatever you do in terms of a birthday party or cake or whatever, all you're doing is fulfilling their right. It's not, oh, thanks, mum, thanks, dad, thanks, housemaster's wife or whatever. It's instead, right, you did what you had to do. That's a good job. I don't need to report you and complain. So it makes them think the real reason they've got a birthday party it's because the government says so. The government's told your parents that that's what you have to do. They have to do something to sort of honor your birthday. Now, that's not from the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. That's just another story that illustrates the principle that it takes away what should be a proper sense of gratitude and replaces it with potentially a sort of sour, moaning, demanding, entitled sort of uh, approach instead. But say so we still haven't got to the main point. <laughs> It also presumes, does it not, that the state knows better than the parents about how a birthday might be celebrated, for example. Like the state might have some magic information about this individual child in this individual county, in this individual town or village, in a, yeah. some country yeah. somewhere, does it not? I mean, the birthday one, I say that's not from the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. That was from the Scottish Care Commission mm -hmm. document. But yeah, it, it is just, I read, they like to communicate to the children, basically that the government's in charge 
And the, it's as though the government has delegated responsibility to the parents. And so they're saying to the young people, if you're not satisfied with the service you're receiving from your parents, you come and tell us because we're their boss. If you tell us, we'll come and sort them out for you and get them to do it properly because we're the ones who really know how you should be being brought up. And that's a, a massive issue in Scotland. You've probably heard of the name Person Scheme, but there's a, a very, very strong culture in education, social work, et cetera, et cetera. This idea that like, the state delegates responsibility to parents, but children can complain about the parents to the state. So in schools, there, there are like, questionnaires that basically invite the children to assess their parents. You know, how easy are your parents to talk to? How are you feeling about things at home? Are you feeling included, etc.? So inviting children to assess their parents, which is completely out of order. That's backwards. It should be that um, your children go to their parents to talk about their teachers, not the other way around. It sounds like something that the Stasi invented, or perhaps yeah, Chairman Mao's uh, regime. Like, what do you? Well, this is reported. This is children being encouraged to report on their parents, isn't it? To snitch or to grass. Oh, absolutely. Snitches get stitches where I'm from. Yeah. Some parents that haven't experienced this, I've told them about this and they don't believe me. So it's great to hear from somebody who's there and has you know witnessed this yeah. in your country. What an unbelievably vile thing. They haven't got time to be filling in questionnaires on the how satisfactory their birthday breakfast was. Judging by some of the standards I'm seeing in what purports to be education these days, I'm a GCSE maths examiner, uh, oh, oh. so I mark the papers. I just need to explain to you there, the Scottish government has made it clear, the Scottish government's education body has made it clear that these international tests don't really capture the essence of Scottish education properly. <laughs> so when you see Scotland falling down the league tables, that's because there's something special about Scottish education that they're just missing out on. And so the Scottish government has withdrawn from these international comparisons, basically. That's been their strategy because it was too embarrassing they withdrew. The one thing they have entered is the International Education Assessment with the OECD. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Is that the egg and spoon race or something like that? No, no, no. no <laughs> this is another horror story. So the OECD, who run the PISA test, math, science, ah, yes. literacy, etc. Scotland's withdrawn from all those, but they're now in the international education one. At the international education assessment, the children answer questions like, should immigrants get a vote? You know, do you see yourself as a world citizen? I can't remember some of the questions, but the gist of it is to try and turn the young people into internationalists and globalists as opposed to patriots, nationalists. Questions like, do you see yourself as a citizen of the world? And this is not just like a survey. There's right and wrong answers. And then you're put in a position in the league table according to how well you've indoctrinated the children into their sort of globalist, internationalist, basically left-wing ideology. And Scotland did very well with that. We're very proud to say. In the indoctrination league table, we did very, very strongly. But the person who produced this international education, I've heard him writing about it, and he said that if this had been introduced in the UK earlier, then the Brexit vote would probably never have happened. So it's perfectly open in admitting that the point of this is to change a generation's political opinions. I mean, Brexit is obviously a political question. So absolutely blatant and unashamed in stating that that's what this form of education is designed to do. I mean, how is that not a huge controversy in the media and in politics? But 
Oh, we know about that. We have very rude words to describe so-called journalists on this podcast, believe me. I would actually argue that once upon a time, Scottish education, traditional Scottish education was something to be revered, something to cherish, something to be extremely grateful for. However, as we're learning, and you're not the first person to talk about this, I had uh, David Scott of the UK column on a few months back, and he was telling me about some of the things that he'd witnessed as an employer of the products of this new education system, for want of a better expression. It seems to me that they are not educating children at all. As you've neatly pointed out, they're simply indoctrinating them. Now, when I was young, I just went to the local comprehensive school, certainly nothing impressive. The teachers, most of them did their best. Some of them were dreadful. Some of them were good. I'm not sure there was anybody who was truly outstanding, but it was what we had. It's all we had. And it was the local school. So we went. They would never tell us who they voted for. They would never share their personal political beliefs, be they sort of politics big P or really politics small P. They were very cautious to guard, to try to not let their personal biases influence work that we did in the classroom, for example, in English literature or in history. They seem to be to try to be as neutral as possible. However, now I see almost the exact opposite in classrooms up and down the country. They even wear the blue hair, you know, in the classroom with uh-huh. the children. It's stunning to me. I thought it I thought there were some kinds of laws and or at least codes of practice that were supposed to prevent teachers from indoctrinating the children in their classrooms. What happened to those? What has happened? We're heading towards the opposite in Scotland. To be a teacher in Scotland, you have to adhere to the values of the General Teaching Council of Scotland. And one of their values is social justice. Now, as far as I'm concerned, and as a general understanding of that term, is it's a sort of left-wing political ideology to do with equalizing outcomes for groups. That's what social justice is. So I disagree with the philosophy of social justice. But to be a teacher in Scotland, you have to adhere to that value. It's quite outrageous. So I actually wrote to GTCS and said, and you explain what social justice is? And they basically couldn't. They <laughs> sort of waffled a bit. And I said, that's a load of waffle. So they eventually said, oh, it's for each teacher to work it out for themselves. But it is just, it's a political bar on teaching. And there's a subject in Scotland that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, as far as I'm aware. It's called modern studies. So it's a bit like history, but current affairs. So it's a mixture of current affairs, a bit of politics, maybe a bit of sociology as well. And a big part of the course is a module on equality. And the assumption is that there's a problem in society and it's called inequality. And the government's job is to solve the problem of inequality. So what we're going to do is tell you about some ways the government tries to solve inequality. So they talk about ways the government gives money to people, basically. So it's then write an essay about the different ways the government gives money to people and decide which one you think is the best one. There's nothing about where does this money come from? Is there any downside in giving money? It's just the assumption is inequality is bad. So the good thing to do is for the government to give away money. And we've just got to work out who it's best to give the money to. It presumes, does it not, that money solves problems of inequality, that money would automatically fix any kind of perceived inequality. Well, how does that work when I'm five foot one and want to be exceptional at the high jump, for example? How does that work then? Isn't it unequal that I can't get an Olympic gold at the Olympics in the high jump at five foot one? Shouldn't they lower the bar for me? Of course it is. You should be given given a step, some steps to give you a a bit of a help. (laughs) Maybe some of those those fancy... um, 
prosthetic limbs because they give you extra spring, don't they? Maybe I could actually have Uh springs on the bottom of my shoes, couldn't I, or something? They don't like PE and sport, do they, these uh, social justice warriors? Because sport and Uh, sport PE, whatever you want to call it. I have to correct you. I have to correct you on that. (laughs) Girls playing rugby can't get enough of it. But the rest of sport, they're not, not really interested. No. I mean, boys doing anything. No. Everyone gets a medal, don't they? Even the losers. Everyone gets a medal. Everybody won. There's no winning. We're all the same. The problem for social justice warriors in sport is that it very clearly points out that he or she who works hardest and has some natural ability and has some decent level of coaching does the best. It's not very difficult to figure out who the number one tennis player is in the world. That's not tricky because you and I, Richard, are going to get on court in our trainers with our tennis rackets and either I'm going to win or you're going to win. And then one of us goes on to play the next best player and we see who wins out of those two. Now, the problem for these people with sport is it's very, very clear that there's no such thing as equality because we're all different. We all excel at different things. And isn't that a good thing? Like, doesn't that help society? Well, the Scottish government's their central mission in education is to close the poverty-related attainment gap. That's their central goal. And all the other parties in the Scottish Parliament say, yes, we agree. That's our central goal as well. So they want to equalise academic performance between schools in wealthier areas and schools in in less well-off areas, which is obviously never going to happen for various reasons. I mean, one thing is just genetics and IQ. Another one is the amount of family breakdown in poor areas is far, far higher. So again, I'm not making this up. This is the truth. So what the government does is it gives extra money to schools in poorer areas to try and help them boost their attainment, the attainment fund. And one school, there was an article in the General Teaching Council of Scotland magazine, they took this money and they bought their children teddy bears because they thought that would help raise their attainment. I mean, it's just, I mean, where'd you start with that? But that's what's, what's going on. So the idea is if you throw money at schools, they'll be able to make the pupils cleverer and be able to improve their level of attainment. There's more to that, of course. The other thing with leveling attainment, Near to me, there's three schools, two of them in wealthy areas, one of them in you know, quite a poor area. So there would be big, a big attainment gap. But the council came up with a plan to solve it. And their plan to solve it was to merge all the three schools together. And again, I'm not joking. This is deadly serious. The council produced a document that said a reason to merge these three schools together was that it would close the attainment gap. So no pupils would be doing any better than they were before. Just because they were all in one school, the statistics wouldn't show an attainment gap. And that was a reason to merge the schools. It's mad. It's completely mad. They're bell curve deniers, aren't they? These people must be bell curve deniers. Absolutely. They must be. Yeah. Well, we're doing a fine job of the same sort of thing down in England, England and Wales, I would say, because this year's GCSE maths exams, there was a little scandal which nobody reported on. And actually, I only discovered it this Saturday. I was teaching a workshop on maths education to parents, and I was showing some of the required percentages for a decent grade at GCSE maths over the past sort of five or six years, missing out, of course, the years where there were no exams, 2020 and 2021. And one of the parents asked me, oh, do you have the grade boundaries for the year just gone? And I said, I don't actually, but during the lunch break, I'll go and find them and we can calculate the percentages and we'll find out what you needed for a pass and or an A grade, the equivalent of an A being a level seven now. And they were horrified, horrified. Some of them had gone off in the break and done it themselves. When I came back afterwards, I was smirking because I'd been telling them in the first half of this workshop that the 
level four, level five, the levels, the numbered levels for GCSE grades were brought in to hide the true attainment of pupils in mathematics. So they changed it. Everyone knows that a C was a pass and a D was a fail under the old system. But now it's very confusing. Is it a five or is it a four? No, there are lots of arguments. Now, what they're saying is that a level four is a standard pass and a level five is a strong pass. However, the percentages, they do not lie. So when they calculated the percentages, these parents learned that level four this year, a so-called standard pass, you needed 16%. One, six, 16% for what's called a standard pass. That is being considered the equivalent of an old grade C. And I'd spent the whole first half of the workshop telling them that a level four is a D, even if they're telling you it's a C, they're lying. And lo and behold, Mm -hmm. look at this wonderful bit of proof. When we calculated the level five out of interest, the strong pass, that was only 29% as well. When in your classroom, Richard, has 16% ever been considered a pass in anything ever? When? Well, I was teaching GCSE. It was an independent school. I was teaching GCSE when that came in. It was basically Michael Gove's reforms when they made the exams tougher, but at the same time, they didn't have a plan to make the children cleverer. So just the grade boundaries went down to those laughable levels. But what we've got in Scotland is, again, they're always focused on closing the attainment gap. So what system do you want for that? Well, ideally, you want an exam that no one fails. You can't get an A, B, or C. You just want pass or fail, and ideally, everyone passes. So that's what they've introduced for sort of 15-year-olds. It's called National 4. It's completely assessed by teachers, <gasps> and you can retake it as many times as you like. So there's a story a while ago in the newspaper, a whistleblower, a maths teacher. He said, look, what I'm expected to do is to go and find pupils who've never been to my lessons all year. I'm expected to go and find them, sit them down in a room, and basically cheat them through the test by just keeping doing it until they happen to get it right by fluke. And this teacher said, right, I'm not doing it. It's dishonest, it's corruption. So we went to the head teacher and said, my conscience will not permit me to engage in this practice. It's just dishonest. And the head teacher said, well, we quite understand. Appreciate your position. Don't worry about it. We'll just get someone else to do it. (laughs) That's that's what happened. So that's national four. But in general, if you want to close an attainment gap, you want the quality of your education system to be low as possible. Because if all you do is teach a bit of basic arithmetic, say, how much of a spread is there going to be between the best and the worst pupils? Well, not very much, because virtually everyone can do it. And no one, you know, the ones who are really good can't do anymore. So the worse your education, the less of an attainment gap there's going to be. But if you provide an education that gives the opportunity for people to go to really advanced work, then you're going to open up massive attainment gaps. So for the Scottish government, in order to meet their objective of closing the attainment gap, they need to offer the lowest quality education possible. And that's what they're doing. Now, when exams were cancelled for COVID, the teachers made up the grades and grade inflation was crazy, especially in poorer schools, schools in poorer areas, should I say. And so it was the same as in England. The government tried to rein it in a bit by moderating it, but there was outcry, kids on the streets with placards. So the government said, okay, we'll leave them as they are. And so that really helps close the attainment gap. So when the teachers make the grades up, that closes the attainment gap. So there's now a very strong move in Scottish education to say, look, we need to do away with exams because you know that obviously that favours rich people unfairly. But not only that, they're saying we shouldn't have any sort of structured uniform assessment because even if you tell the teachers to assess by the same criteria, 
that's discriminating against the poorer pupils. So what you need to do is just leave it entirely up to the teacher because they're the only people who really know those pupils. And once the nice teacher decides the grades on purely subjective criteria, then we'll have a fair exam system. And the dumbest population in the history of the world, you know, something that made the Middle Ages yeah. look like uh, the Renaissance. My goodness me. It's everywhere, isn't it? I was showing parents screenshots where, you know, pupils on the higher tier paper cannot multiply 16 by 3 with a pencil and a pair or a you know, pen and paper method, no method for 16 times 3. And we're not talking about an isolated incident here. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds out of the thousands that I marked. And you just think, wow, you're the top kids. You're the best kids in the country. You're the top third. And uh-huh. this is what you're producing now. For me, it was a yet another sort of wake-up call that something is very, very wrong. And it's I think you nailed it with this children's rights business, this kind of particularly along the lines of equality. But above all of that, you started with a beautiful little line that I'd like people to think about that I'd like you to flesh out for us. You wrote, is the fruit of the children's rights obsession in our schools a generation prone to selfishness and defiance? Are schools undermining their own authority by incessant rights education? I wonder if you could provide me with an answer to that and broaden it out, not just for schools, because aren't we seeing this selfishness and defiance in general society as well as a result of this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That brings us to the heart of the thing with children's rights. Again, before I go to that specifically, there is a movement in academia that's very influential. That's sort of children's liberation movement. And it follows the usual sort of Marxist philosophy that there's an oppressed group and there's an oppressor group. Now, when it comes to children, they say children are an oppressed group and they're oppressed by adult authority. So in order for children to flourish and to be treated justly, they need to be liberated from adult authority. Another way someone put it, we need to abolish the concept of childhood so that children have got the same rights as adults. Now, you don't need me to explain, obviously, that's just completely bonkers and it's going to be very, very detrimental to children. But that sort of thinking is pushed through the children's rights. Now, the two rights that they focus on in schools, one of them is children have got a right to be listened to. If you look at the original text, what it means is, for example, if parents are split up, and there are some judges deciding where's the child going to live. Then if the child's a bit older, then you ask the child to express an opinion, whether they'd like to live with mum and dad, say, for example. That's the sort of thing. But they take that right and they apply it to mean that basically you can't tell children what to do. You can only discuss things with them. They've got a right to have a say in anything. So in Scotland, primary school children have a say in who the head teacher is when they're recruiting a new head teacher. And it creates them, they're basically told, say, no one's got the right to tell you what to do. So if a teacher or a parent says to a child, right, you're not allowed to do that. You've got to go and do that now. The child is quite likely to think, hang on a minute, do you not realize I've got rights? You have to listen to my view as well. So it really undermines parental authority. And just the icing on the cake here, the Scottish government has produced a document about redefining child abuse, redefining the crime of child abuse. And one of their proposed definitions of child abuse is to make a child feel that their opinion is worthless. Make a child feel that their opinion is worthless. So see, it's the same idea. You've got to listen to what children say. And how's that different from you've got to do what they want? It's a bit of a fine line, isn't it? So this would really put parents, well, it does already, but we'll do even more, really puts parents and teachers on the back foot. 
they're thinking, right, I'm, I'm on shaky ground here because they've said they don't want it. So it seems like I'm not listening to them. So I'd maybe better back off and let them do as they like. So schools, it's like collective suicide of a school authority. They're shooting themselves in the foot. But it seems like most teachers, most schools, they don't realize that they're doing it. I must say, I have little care for what's called school these days. I think they deserve everything that they are getting because if they do not have the courage and the integrity to stand up for what's right and actually engage some critical thinking skills about the system that they work in themselves, then to hell with them, to hell with them. I'm much more concerned, as I think you are, about the family, the damage to the family unit, because the family unit is the most important part of any successful society. Wherever you have breakdown of family units or conflict within family unit, I mean, Jordan Peterson says it all the time, doesn't he? Set your own house in perfect order before you dare try to change the world because he knows, because he's read and read and read all of the greats, that if you take care of your own business and if everybody did that for themselves in a manner of deep personal responsibility, then society would start to heal itself immediately. What is wrong with these goons in so-called authority and in politics and in teaching that can't seem to see that? Is it because their own lives are such a train wreck at home? What is the reason? Uh, I think think the way they undermine family life is disgraceful, despicable. And they know full well they're doing it. I think often that they probably think it is in the best interest of the children because they've got this like professionalization worldview. It's got to be the person with the right qualifications, with the right role paid by the government. That's the person who's really can look after children the best. So that's why they're given the authority. But I often find the lack of critical thinking in the education profession is astounding. It does get swept along by passions. And often there are people who will question it. There'll be a quiet conversation in the corner of the staff room. Yeah, this is nonsense, isn't it? But it so rarely actually comes through into the official public debate about education. It, it just It's suppressed because it's risky to articulate these things. But just with the right, I mean, this listening business is one way it does harm. The other thing they take from it is that one of the children's rights is that you shouldn't be subjected to you know, degrading punishment. But again, when that was written in the 1950s, you can imagine what it meant. They probably found there's some schools, who knows where, pupils were like locked up all day or put in stocks or something or made to stand in the corner with a dunce's hat. I mean, who knows what? But they take that and you can imagine, it gets translated into basically, no one's got the right to punish you. I mean, is it degrading to be kept behind for 10 minutes? It is, it's humiliating because all the other people know about it. So you feel humiliated and degraded and upset. So that infringes your rights. But what about your responsibilities? So the are more or less taught, then you shouldn't be punished. It's a disgrace. What a terrible, terrible lesson. So if you do something wrong, it doesn't matter then. Because doesn't punishment teach you that you do something wrong, you pay a penalty, you apologize, you comply with the punishment, then it's done and you get to start again. You get to have another go. Isn't that a more valuable lesson for young people to learn than I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter, even if I hurt somebody? Well, for the Scottish government, they would disagree completely and say, no, wrongdoing doesn't deserve punishment. It's not malice, it's malfunction. It's just something's gone wrong in that young person's thinking, something in their experience that haven't quite been looked after properly. Maybe they're a bit upset about something. Maybe they just don't understand that punching someone in the face hurts them. If you could just help them to understand, then they'll 
They'll be lovely people. There's no need for punishment at all. And they've got the same ethos throughout. They don't think anyone's worthy of punishment at any age. The Scottish government has now said that people aged under 25 are in one sense not fully criminally responsible. So if they commit a crime, the judge is to think to themselves, well, it's not really their fault because they're only 24 years old. So we can't really expect them to control their behavior because their brain's not quite mature enough. But that's just one. But basically, that they don't believe in morality in a conventional sense. Everything's society's fault. Basically, they think the human mind is, is like a, a mechanism. So its output just depends on its input. And so if someone does something wrong, there's no point like punish them. It wasn't their fault. It's just the uh, events in their life, the laws of physics or whatever, led them to do that. And so, okay, that's happened. So let's see if we can change the situation a little bit so it doesn't happen again. But punishment and moral accountability, basically don't believe in them. And I don't want you English people listening to this, thinking this is a Scottish thing. I know the Irish won't think that. They've got their heads screwed on. They're not. But I know plenty of people from my country that here's these kinds of things. They go, oh, that's those basket cases in Scotland. Oh, that's those crazies on the other side of the water there. That's the... No, 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 no. I have seen this in my own teaching career in England. There was a unit, a special educational needs unit, that wasn't part of the special educational needs unit. These children were so special, they had their own unit. Anyway, their perceived disability was that they didn't understand language properly. And obviously, that's a massive sliding scale. It was very difficult to prove. The research was being done by the people who are in charge of the unit and benefiting from large salaries, etc. In any case, there was a young girl called Kimberly, who happened to be in one of my classes. She was in my bottom set year nine mathematics class that particular year. Anyway, she was being harassed by an irritating boy on the corridor at some point. And she turned around and told this boy to F off. Now, whilst that wasn't very nice, I was actually slightly impressed because she, this girl who supposedly couldn't understand or use language properly, not because she's from another country, she was born and bred in England, but she has some sort of disability. I was quite impressed that actually that was the right response. It was in the wrong place that needed to happen outside of school. That shouldn't have happened in a corridor, of course not. But she actually did the sort of thing that any other teenager would have done in that situation. That boy was being an irritating turd. He deserved to be told to do one. That would have been better, wouldn't it, than F off. But I thought, wow, so she's just done something there that technically we're told she can't do. And I thought, this is wonderful. So there's way more capacity in there than she's being given credit for in in academics. Anyway, there was a massive hoo-ha because the head of this special unit was advocating that, oh no, she didn't know what she was saying. She didn't know what she was doing. She can't be punished for this. Nobody was advocating for any kind of serious punishment. Anyway, most of the staff were delighted that this young girl who'd been thought to not have any capacity, particularly with language, was able to do that. And anybody who witnessed it could see that this irritating turd had been told to do one by Kimberly, and she knew precisely what she was doing. But this mentality of, oh, they don't know what they're doing, is it's mendacious. It is dangerous. It is harming your children. Children do stuff wrong. Adults do stuff wrong. It's better to be corrected when you're younger and you can learn what is and isn't really appropriate and acceptable than it is when you're older. However, isn't there some nobility to doing something wrong, paying a penalty, saying, yep, yeah, all right, you got me, I'm sorry, fixing it. And mo- I personally admire people who do something wrong, accept the punishment and move on. I had yeah, much more admiration yeah. for that character than any of these people who never do anything wrong. Who's never done anything no. wrong? What are you talking about? The lunatics yeah, are in yeah. charge, aren't they? That's one of the core 
human intuitions is that if you do something wrong, you deserve punishing. People who do things wrong shouldn't get away with it. That's a real core intuition that's been in the heart of the structuring of societies throughout human history. But just recently, in some places, they decided they could do away with it. I mean, in Scotland, it's not unusual. I've heard repeated stories from primary schools where usually a boy will basically go berserk in the classroom, throw chairs around, kick the furniture over, knock all the books off the shelves, smash a couple of computers. So the class is evacuated to somewhere safe, and the boy continues smashing the place up. They'll call in the support teacher or whoever, the guidance teacher. He'll come and say, now, Peter, you seem a bit angry today. What's bothering you today? So Peter say, ah, F off and whatever, and smash up the place a bit more. And then eventually Peter smashed up everything it feels like. Then the guidance teacher will say, Peter, would you like to come and talk about what's bothering you now? Then they go off to the Addo, the support hub, and he plays on the PlayStation, has a hot chocolate and a biscuit. And then eventually when he's calmed down, he goes back to class and he just carries on as normal. I mean, that's just routine. There are special schools, schools for pupils with behavior problems in Scotland, where you know, there's quite commonly violence towards teachers. You know, a teacher will be hit by a pupil. And the policy says, no matter what a pupil does, you sit down with them and say, how can we support you better? So, so you're always saying to them, look, it's not your fault. doesn't matter what you've done. We're not saying it's your fault at all. It's our fault. We mustn't have been supporting you properly. So please tell us how we can do better to stop you punching the art teacher again. This is real child abuse now. This is real child abuse. Pretending to a child that it's someone else's fault that they hit somebody, that to me is child abuse. That is the definition of child abuse because what we're not doing is providing half of the whole concept of what might be described as love. So if you can imagine love as a circle, if you slice it in half, you have love. And this part of the love is the soft love. It's the fluffy stuff. It's the kind stuff. It's the cuddles. It's the tea. It's the biscuits. The come now, Peter. Have you had a bad day this morning with mummy? What happened? The other side of love is tough love. And if you're not providing that for children in all its different glories, tough love, then you are neglecting them. And in many cases, outright abusing them because you are allowing them to damage other people physically, believe that that's not a result of their own actions, their own thoughts and actions, which it clearly is, and allowing them to go into the next phase of their life blissfully unaware that what they are doing is entirely inappropriate and out there in the streets would get a very, very different response. Are we not actually outright neglecting and or abusing children with these policies? Yeah, it's miseducation. It's anti-education. It's taking a, a child from where they are and pushing them in the wrong direction. It's doing whatever character they've already got and undermining it. It should be the biggest controversy in education. Because in Scotland, the government policy is pushing towards abolishing punishments. Again, that should be a massively controversial political issue. But people are not interested. They're only interested in education when it's numbers. How many teachers are there? How many subjects have they got to choose? How much money has been spent on new school buildings? Anything with numbers in, they can get that. When it comes to that philosophy of education and these sort of issues, it's not interested. The whole parliament, not interested. Are there still punishments in Scottish schools at all of any kind? Because I have to say there's very little evidence of that in, the, in, uh, in England. Very little evidence. You're not even allowed to issue lines in some schools in England. Yeah, I mean, there are still punishments going on, but the government doesn't want them. The government's education agency, Education Scotland, their training and advice and inspections push schools towards abolishing them. 
So the Education Scotland teaches the punishment is unnecessary, ineffective, and counterproductive. And what you should have instead is like mini counselling sessions, the restorative approach. So they more or less enforce that on schools. But how is that going to work in the military then? So we're going to have Sergeant Wilson saying, come along, chaps, wouldn't you mind awfully falling in? It doesn't work like that. If you want to train some, let's face it, killers, you want to train the infantry, that's no way to handle the kinds of young gentlemen who are able to use those skills supposedly for their country, for their state. How does this work? I mean, let's look at discipline. You have proper discipline in the military. You have it in the Royal Ballet. You have it in elite sport. I mean, I couldn't be more grateful for the coaches who were tough on me, physically very tough on me. That's why I achieve great things. That's why I have lots of medals in my cabinet. They're their medals too, because they push you through and they make you better and they make you realise, actually, do you know what? That conduct wasn't appropriate. Now, I had no troubles in the classroom because I saw the classroom as a quite a strict place, but the sports field was like the Wild West. I loved it, but I, I need it. I very much needed that physical guidance. How do we, if we're not... I don't really agree with schools anymore anyway, because I view that the state gets its malign power from schooling children when the people get their power from true education and the state ought to be afraid of the people, not the other way around. So I don't like them anyway. But if you are going to have them, shouldn't they at least be prepping young people for excellence in sport, a career in the military? Like, how's that going to work? What are we going to do with our soldiers then? Are we going to sit down for a wee counselling session? What? How does this work? Well, I think ultimately the vision of the Scottish government will be an independent Scotland where what soldiers they have would really be like social workers in camouflage. I mean, aid workers in camouflage. I mean, I can't imagine them actually wanting to have any sort of military. But I mean, it's quite right, though. They're not training young people. They're not preparing them for life. And also, if you're in this sort of school, it means the amount of bullying going on. And a lot of this is the people who pay the price for it are the other pupils. Because the lessons, chaos, you've got pupils throwing their weight around, being really obnoxious. And the school doesn't do anything. So some parents are absolutely tearing their hair out with this because the school won't deal with misbehaving pupils. Meanwhile, the school's thinking, you know, this is really unenlightened parents. In fact, there's a great publication came out from General Teaching Council of Scotland a few years ago. And it said, you know, we're introducing these restorative approaches. So, you know, no punishments. And they said, we're having a problem because a lot of the children are saying they don't like it and they think the naughty ones should be punished. So we're saying we've got, you know, we've got a real challenge on our hand here. We need to educate the children to basically eject their basic moral intuitions so they can go along with the government. Now, normally, whatever the children say, I mean, that's sacrosanct. You've just got to do what they say. I mean, they've got rights, of course. So if children said, we want punishments, then we're going to have punishments. But of course, on this particular area, as the children are actually regarded as wrong and they need overruling, telling them that it's not actually a problem when someone smashes the classroom up and gets away with it. But that's the way it's supposed to be. There's a massive obfuscation between punishment and restoration as well, isn't there? So much so that restoration is being substituted as punishment. When somebody does something wrong, very often it's appropriate not only for a punishment to be served, but also for some restorative action to be taken as well. That's not always appropriate, not in every circumstance. If the moment has gone, if the you know, if you've given somebody a bloody nose, well, the restoration, you can't unbloody the nose. I understand that. But there ought to be a punishment for the crime that was committed particularly so that other pupils can see that justice has been done. But also a restorative act might be, I don't know, to 
have a conference with the student that you hit and formally apologize to them. Formally apologize. See, in some of the schools I've taught in, this formal apology to another student in the presence of a couple of members of staff was seen in itself and of itself as a punishment, which of course is nothing of the sort. You've just got to go and say you're mm-hmm. sorry when you've smacked someone in the nose. And I'm sorry, yeah. no, what? This is not okay. And I think they're deliberately, it's almost like appropriation of language. It's like they're disguising one thing for the other and completely confusing two separate things. There is punishment and there is restoration. They are not the same thing. And these are very important lessons for young people, important lessons for older yeah. people that ought to know better. But this is vital. All of this stuff needs to take place from young years, doesn't it? Otherwise, we get serious breakdowns of society later on. Yeah, yeah. But the restorative conversation, I mean, that's been a part of normal practice in teaching for certainly as long as I can remember. And of course, there's sometimes you just want to talk about things or sometimes people have fallen out and it wasn't anyone's particularly done anything wrong. It's just they've both been a bit awkward or whatever. So of course, you know all those things, but teachers and schools need the option as well of the punishment. And that's really important. But I think what happens with the restorative approaches is it starts being used as a punishment because, I mean, to the average eight-year-old boy, being made to sit talking to the guidance teacher about your feelings for an hour, I mean, they'd probably say, can I not just do detention? This is torture. This is cruel and unusual punishment. And I can quite empathize with that. I mean, I would find that torture as well. So the restorative process becomes like a punishment, especially with boys, just because it's so painful and uncomfortable and awkward and whatever. And they would claim, oh, that's because it's very challenging. It's making them think. And it's not really. It's just they don't like that sort of conversation. It's funny. So it's I'm laughing. They'll get away with it. I'm laughing because in the olden days, the good old days, perhaps, young lads, particularly if they were sportsmen, they would actually volunteer to have their detentions caned off so they could just go in, get that punishment dealt with and go and make the field for the match in the afternoon. Whereas if they didn't do that, they would be sat there in detention, bored out of their minds, missing what they love rugby. It's interesting that you mentioned boys because they are very different to girls, particularly from a psychological perspective. And that matters in education. That really matters. I had an interesting experience in one of the schools in which I taught in the south of England, one of the worst schools in the country, comprehensive school, and a really struggling basket case of a school. I went there because I like challenges. Uh, (laughs) I was a former football referee in men's football, so I figured I could handle myself. So I went down there and I thought, right, let's see, let's see what we've got. And it was It was like a zoo. It was chaos. I've worked in pupil referral units, behavior schools for children who have very complicated behavior problems. And this school was worse. This school was way worse than the pupil referral unit that I'd worked in. I was like, wow, this is interesting. So in the first year that I was there, the school managed only 47% A star to C. So only 47% of the children in mathematics got a GCSE. Less than half of the children in year 11 actually passed the exam. The next year, after I had a few words with my classes and other things, we got 72%. Same children, same school. I'd only been there. That was only my second year in the school. And I'd only had the children for nine months because I didn't get to teach my two years. I got put on different classes when they realized I knew how to run a classroom. So we massively improved the GCSE mathematics outcomes for the school purely based on how I, as an individual, managed my classroom and I managed my classroom like a football field. I, I was ruthless, but I was fair. Like, no means no. You're going to do what I say because I say so. We're here to get academic results, right? This is not a holiday camp. And my, just, just for my, literally the use of my character, my voice, my attitude, and my experience on the sports fields, I made that enormous difference in 
academic outcomes, real academic outcomes, not some crazy government questionnaire or some nonsense. They love their facts and figures. Well, there's some facts and figures, and it's provable how I did it. Everybody knew that if another child had misbehaved, they ended up putting them in my classroom. I was a newly qualified teacher. And then in the second year, a recently qualified teacher when I made this difference. I wasn't a teacher of 10 years experience. If it's so easy, if it's so simple, why aren't we doing it, Richard? What's this really all about? If a rookie can go in and do something like that just because she happens to be able to manage a football match, why is this not happening everywhere? Why was this not used? Why was I not asked to go and you know, give lectures and show what I'd done? What's this really all about? Because there's a philosophy, an overriding philosophy that's a sort of semi-political philosophy that's driving the whole educational establishment, certainly in Scotland, and it knows what's best. Before it sees any evidence, it already knows what the right direction is. So no matter what the outcome is, so if standards of attainment go down, the solution is always, the problem is we haven't gone far enough in the direction we're going. We have to be even more progressive. So if behavior deteriorates, what's the problem? What do we need to do? What we need to do is go even further in the direction that we're going. Mr. Classic quack medicine strategy, right? Here's the pill. It'll make you better. And if you come back the next day and you say, well, actually, it's made me worse. You say, ah, that's what happens sometimes. You just need to take more. It will eventually just take more and more. You'll get there in the end. And that's what it is, because basically they're not open to the evidence because they've got the fixed views about human nature and justice and equality or whatever. And that's already set, and that determines which direction education should go in. So they're completely immune to any evidence to the contrary. And so where it's not working, it's people are not doing it right. So you think it's kind of a blindness to all of the evidence that's everywhere all around them? It's just a blindness? Or is there something, is there something else? What is their goal? What is it they're exactly trying to achieve with this equality business? We know how it ends up. We've seen that, the evidence of that in the 20th century, and we don't need any more. We don't need any more evidence of what happens when you enact these kinds of, we're all the same, we're all equal, ridiculous, cray-cray ideologies. What's going on? That's what they believe that inequality is the central problem in society. Inequality is between groups. So the purpose of the education system is to flatten out these differences between groups. That's one thing. They also believe that children are so vulnerable and so delicate that if they're presented with any sort of unpleasant experience, any challenge, any failure, that's going to scar them for life. And they're going to just be wrecked for the rest of their life. So we can't allow that to happen to them. They also believe that there's no such thing as moral accountability. If someone does something wrong, it wasn't their fault. It was just the events in their life up to that point have led them to do that. So it's not their fault. So starting from those three beliefs, I mean, where can you go from there? I mean, those beliefs are wrong, but unless you're going to change them, then you're going to wreck education systems. Where have they come from? It's as simple as that. Where have these beliefs come from? Because it seems that they're everywhere in education in particular, but you can see it in politics, you can see it in the media. Where has it come from then? How come it all of it? It wasn't like that when I was at school. And if it was, it was much less obvious. It was in much smaller doses and it didn't apply to all of the teaching stuff. Why has that changed? Where's it come from? The change in in terms of moral accountability, that's partly a secularization issue, because without some supernatural belief, it's quite hard to explain uh, any concept of free will. So I think it's society is becoming more consistent with a sort of 
non-religious secular philosophy that it holds. So that's just coming through more. It's been applied more consistently in the area of morality. In terms of the delicacy, I think partly that's, I would describe it under the umbrella of feminization of education, because whatever you'd associate with being more a feminine quality, it's just going overboard in that direction. So the fragility, vulnerability, therapeutic ethos, that's a balance issue. It's just very out of balance. And I think again, that's a cultural thing. That's the thing in our society. Because generally, qualities that are associated with being feminine are generally glorified and honored and celebrated. Qualities that are associated more with, with masculinity are demonized. So I think that cultural trend is reflected there. And in terms of the educational standards and the equality, they really do genuinely believe a sort of blank slate, a sort of concept of humanity. So everyone's got the same potential. So if people work turn out differently, that's because they've been treated differently. And if we could just treat them all the same, then we could equalize these differences and then you know, we'd have true equality, which is just biologically for a start isn't true, but they genuinely believe it, not for any scientific reasons, because of political reasons and because they think it makes them a nice person type reasons. And they regard those beliefs as unshakable and they never really get challenged in the educational system. You're not allowed to challenge them in case it damages them for life. Uh You might have a hurty-hurty conversation, right? Fairness doesn't always look the same. It's different things for different people, and that's fair. You can't apply one standard to everybody. It doesn't work that way. We all need different things. They love it when it's special educational needs. They love it when, oh, you've got to put this on purple paper for those children, and these children need a a green crayon, they can't have a red one. And you've got to juggle all of these crazy things inside one classroom. And yet when it comes to the real needs of young children that are very different, oh, no, no, you can't give lines to anybody in this school. That's banned. That's forbidden. That's torture. Mm -hmm. What? What are you talking about? So again, it's that complete inversion that you were talking about earlier with the rights of the child, whereby we have to listen to the child, except when the children say we want punishments for naughty children. <laughs> you can't yeah. have it always. It's You're cheating, aren't they? You're just cheating. You're cheating yourself, yeah. not just us. You're yeah. cheating everybody with your crazy policies. I mean, the classic illustration that's used in Scottish education of the equity idea that you, you hear about all the time, you, you must have seen this, where you've got three pupils of different heights, and there's a fence, and they all want to look over the fence. One of them is tall enough to look over it, just stand on the ground. The next one needs a block to stand on. And then the smallest one needs a bigger block to stand on. So it gives the impression, the idea of education is you get everyone to the same level and you're just going to do whatever it takes to get everyone to the same level. So the one who can already see over the fence where you can forget them, they don't need any extra help at all. Mission accomplished with them. The box is ticked. Just forget them. All your energy needs to go into trying to get the others up to the same level. But that's completely wrong. Education should be about trying to get everyone to do as much as they can, to go as far as they can, which will widen any attainment gaps. Yeah, well, of course it will. But as far as education, it should be taken for granted. You don't. The bottom line here is there's nothing wrong with attainment gaps. Attainment gaps are perfectly healthy. It would be boring if everyone was a you know, a maths teacher like me, wouldn't it? What a boring world we'd live in if we were all the same. I think it's wonderful. I love talking to students who are cartoonists or musicians, or they happen to be better at this or that. You know, I I will teach anybody to get to the highest possible standard they can in mathematics, not because I want them all to be maths geniuses. I don't. We'd be bored. We'd live in a boring world where we'd be missing so many skills. I mean, 
what about welders? We, don't we need welders? We need people who can weld. We need plumbers. We need electricians. We need all of these things. Mm-hmm. So why is it that we are completely obsessed with this? We must narrow the gap. We must narrow this attainment gap. We must all fail equally. <laughs> we well, must I mean, all fail equally. They, in Scotland, they've measured the ability of kids when they arrive at nursery or arrive at school. And obviously, they find big differences between poorer and wealthier areas. So the Scottish government thinks, oh, okay, this must be caused by differences in wealth. So what we need to do is just give more money to children born in poorer families. And they really do believe that by giving them £500, it's going to make them a bit cleverer when they start school. It's going to expand their vocabulary or whatever. They really do think that money is the ultimate cause of academic ability. It's an absolute fantasy. I genuinely struggle to get my head around that. And I really do mean it. I don't see how anybody who's worked in a classroom can see that to be true. Because it isn't there are children from disadvantaged backgrounds who go to Cambridge, who go to Oxford. There are disadvantaged children who go on to excel in sport. In some respects, it's harder to excel in certain sports if you don't have money. In academics, if you put the effort in and you have a bit of natural ability, there's no stopping you. I just, I don't understand how any honest person that has had classroom experience can come to those conclusions. How is that happening? What did I miss? Which pill didn't I take? Why didn't I think like them? Why didn't you? It's partly ideology. It's partly as well political strategy. Hmm. So if you can say to a big enough portion of the electorate, you're getting a raw deal. Your children should be doing better than this. They're being, you know, society is holding them back. We're going to fix it. Then that's an appealing pitch to a substantial portion of the electorate. And that's, you could say, uh, um, in terms of the left-wing politics, that's quite a major theme. It's trying to persuade people to get in a raw deal and then say, we're the government, we're going to sort it out. Now, in the question, obviously, is going to be whether that's true or not. In some cases, it might be absolutely true that a group's getting a raw deal and it's quite right for the government to try and sort it out. But they're always looking for cases like that. And I think with education, that's become one. So, yeah, the message is your children are very possibly being held back by some structural flaw in society, and we, the government, or we, the potential government, would sort it out so that your children do as well as they can. I think you've cracked it there. I think you've nailed it. We've got it just there where you said it's appealing to the electorate. Uh All of this stuff has nothing to do with education. All this stuff about education has nothing to do with education. All of this policy is about scoring votes, and scoring votes is about power. It's power for the state and not for the people. I think you're absolutely on the money there. So tell us, Richard, how is voting for the Scottish Family Party? How is that going to genuinely improve things? What, What is going to happen? What can voters that vote for your party expect from you, from the party? Well, the whole idea of the Scottish Family Party is to exploit the electoral system in Scotland that's got a proportional representation element, which means you can get MSPs elected with a minimum of about 5% in a region. There's eight regions in Scotland. So that means as a small party, you are in in with a chance. It's a mountain to climb, a 5% is a lot, but it's not like in, in England where you've just got, basically, if you start a new party, you've got more or less no chance of ever getting an MP elected. But in Scotland, it's different. So our objective is to get some MSPs in the Scottish Parliament. If we just got a handful in, even you know, just one or two, it's not that we think, oh, we'd have one or two votes out of 129. That would make the real difference. We'd really be able to steer the ship with our two votes. Well, obviously not. 
but we'd be able to say some different things. It would be two voices saying something different and bringing in some other opinions. And also they would be then heard more widely in the nation. Then more people would think, hang on a minute, that makes sense. That's so before you know it, maybe we'd have an MSP in every region. So you then have eight. And then you've got a little bit of influence. But again, the main point is to use the platform of the Scottish Parliament to open up the debate and to persuade people that there's another way of looking at things. For example, a lot of teachers, I think, think, you know, um, there's something wrong here with what's going on. I don't like the way things are heading. But if you were to say to them, okay, could you explain it? What's the problem? What should we do instead? There might be a bit, well, they're not quite sure. I haven't quite thought it through that much. So part of what we can do is to articulate clearly what the problem is and how things should change. And then that enables a lot of other people to say, yeah, that's it. That's what I've been thinking. You know, he or she, they're saying what I think. And then you get some influence. But ultimately, in a democracy, you don't take control until there's a majority of the people more or less agree with you. And we're not at that point. But you've got to start from where we are. So we want to use the parliament as a means to open up debate, shift public opinion, and then take it from there. That's an exceptional answer to a tricky question, Richard. Thank you very much indeed. That was class. Well done. It's it's very, very important. In fact, it's imperative that other arguments are heard in a time when everyone is bleating the same garbage, the same ideology from the same hymn sheet. It is dangerous. We live in exceptionally dangerous times. I firmly believe that. We've seen evidence of that over the past two or three years. God knows we have. It is vital that other voices are heard. And I completely agree that sometimes a good example for me is back to Mr. Peterson, but sometimes Dr. Jordan Peterson articulates something that I've thought but couldn't I couldn't say it myself. I couldn't, I don't have the reading. I'm not as well read in or anything like as well read in psychology as he is or in philosophy. And I, I'm like, ah, yes, that's it. And I, I so often sit and listen and think, yep, right. Thank you. Thank you for saying the things that I think in a way that other people can understand and in a, in an eloquent and articulate manner that is easy for other people to listen to and to, to follow and to understand. Yeah. I think it's the, there's a massive gap. Then I'm very pleased to hear that there's more possibilities for you guys north of the border to really get elected than there are south of the border. So there you go, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. It's not all over yet. It isn't over till the fat lady sings and I'm not even warming up just yet. Richard, can you please tell us where to find you? Where do the listeners find you, your party and your book? I've got, I will put all of the links under the description. So if anything's slightly out or doesn't match up, it will be there on yeah. Sunday for anyone who wants to find you. Uh, first thing I point people towards is go to our YouTube channel, just Scottish Family Party, and you can see a video of us projecting images from the Scottish Government sex education resources on the side of the Scottish Parliament, which you, you might enjoy watching that. It's got quite a lot of views at the moment. So that's our YouTube channel, just Scottish Family Party. You find us on Facebook as well. Our website, scottishfamily.org, you'll find information there. In particular, some resources to download including this book. You can download the contents of this book. It's about gender, sexuality, sex education in Scotland. I mean, have a look at that. Again, you'll find it unbelievable to see what's happening there. It would be fascinating for you, I'm sure. We have quite a few members in England. Uh, I think we've got one or two in Wales as well. So if you do like what we're doing and you want to support us, you can join or become a, a regular donor via our website as well. But do follow us on social media. You'll see we're up to all sorts of things. And you might find it quite interesting to follow our activities. 
It's certainly different. It's completely refreshing. And I'm sincerely grateful that you took some time out to come on and talk to us this morning. Keep doing what you are doing. You know where to find Richard. He's there at scottishfamily.org. He is the leader and founder of the Scottish Family Party. And his name is Richard Lucas. Go seek him out. Thank you very much, Richard. I really appreciate your time. And I wish you the very best with your mission. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our chat. Very interesting. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.